The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another edition of the Cool Stuff Ride Home Podcast. I'm Reggie Rizzo with Marcus Path, bringing you some of the most interesting stories of the day. On today's episode, is it trash or treasure? We'll take a look at several stories that may make you rethink what you are throwing away. What is found in our landfills could be worth billions. And nearly five decades later, this item finally makes its way home. Plus, today in history. You know the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure? Well, that is definitely the case here. It all started a few years ago when a painting by 13th century master Chimabue went up for auction. That painting, known as Christ Mocked or the Derision of Christ, hung over a hot plate of a 90-year-old Frenchwoman. She had planned on tossing that 10 by 8 painting in the nearest trash can several times. One of her children, however, decided to bring an appraiser into the house while they were helping her move. Well, that painting sold for $25 million in 2019, Ooh. four times the expected amount that it would retrieve. The buyer of the painting, who works for other collectors, says Chimabue is the beginning of everything. He started modern art. When I held the painting in my hands, I almost cried, end quote. The artwork is part of a diptych that included eight different altar paintings. However, only two of them are known today. Only 15 of Chimambue works are known, and those are mostly frescoes. Now it has been announced that Christ Mocked will be part of a Louvre exhibit in honor of his works in 2025. So that painting went from hanging over a hot plate in a 90-year-old French woman's house and almost placed in the trash to being featured at the Louvre. That's quite the transformation in that story there. Yeah, and you talk about transformations, Reggie. The family of that 90-year-old lady who retrieved the $25 million, as you pointed out, uh, that that's life-altering for generations to come in all likelihood. Can you imagine thinking, oh, I guess we'll bring in an appraiser, see what we can find out for this. And $25 million later, here we are. Yeah, that goes to show you, you should always... Always, if you have an opportunity, and of course, I don't know what type of expense it would be to bring in an appraiser, but if there's any doubt or any question, bring someone in to have a look at it. Now, this family, you never would have known what you had given up if it had simply been thrown in the trash, but my goodness, uh, you talk about changing the trajectory of a family lineage. <laughs> this is one way to do it, no doubt. Well, and the history of art. I mean, you, you've you added a collection out there that now millions of people will be able to see because it's hanging up in a museum. 100%. And you know, Reggie, this actually reminded me of another story that I'd come across prior to today's episode. I'll start by telling you this, because I, I think you probably are one. Fans of the Indiana Jones franchise, You'll recall the eponymous hero set out in search of the Holy Grail. That's the Cup of Christ, of course, in what was originally the series film finale, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Well, sometimes real life can be more convenient than what we see in film. No, the Holy Grail hasn't actually been discovered, but a homeowner in the UK did stumble upon another valuable cup. 
one that originated in China during the Qing Dynasty. The piece appeared relatively ordinary at first, albeit one with a fairly intricate design, but a closer inspection and investigation revealed it to be a centuries-old Chinese antique made of rhinoceros horn. Believed to detect poison, the rhinoceros horn that is, and hold aphrodisiac qualities for users 350 years ago. British auctioneer and TV star Charles Hansen had actually just completed a visit to a couple's home for the purposes of assessing some of their antiques. And according to the story from GNN, Hansen had just wrapped up his visit and was sitting in his car about to drive off when the couple ran out and asked if they could show him one more thing. Hansen later said, quote, they disappeared into the garage. What was then placed into my hands was a magical find. I instantly recognized it as a rare Chinese object dating back to the late 17th or early 18th century, end quote. Now, the cup's journey from ancient China to a garage in the UK raises some pretty serious questions about its providence and how it ended up there in such an unexpected location. And obviously, the financial windfall from this unexpected discovery could have ramifications on this family, much like the lady that we discussed here with the painting a few moments ago for a uh, significant number of years to come. Yeah, I actually saw this story, Marcus. I found that interesting too. Another trash or treasure type instance here. Now, I did see that you mentioned the rhinoceros horn able to possibly tell if the drink was poison or not. I find that to be interesting. I think they said it would change colors if there was poison nearby. It did. Uh, they did yeah. say that. Yeah. And rhinoceros horn is considered one of the eight precious symbols uh, seen as prosperity and luck. And the design on that cup, did you see the the picture where it had the, the dragon and all the intricate, like, you know, curves and stuff? It, it was really uh, drawn out. I mean, I, I would almost think instead of hiding that in the garage, I would have been drinking out of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right, though. It's It's such an elaborate, intricate design. And you think about when this was created, obviously all done by hand at that point. And it, it really gives you a sense of appreciation for just how artistic and how talented these folks were that, that put this together, because, my God, I, I can't uh, I can't imagine sitting around and creating something with this much detail, um, you know, and, and, and the time that it probably took to turn something like this out. And the cup will be going up for auction on November 30th. So if you're interested in buying it, there's still there's still time out there. <laughs> Get your checkbook out now. Does anybody, <laughs> yeah. do you still use a checkbook for these types of things? I'm not sure how that works. They probably just transfer funds, but who knows? There may be somebody old, old school out there writing out their check. <laughs> uh, you know, because of the value of the cup, though, Chinese law is going to grant it as a work of art status, which could allow it to be uh, returned to China if the buyers want to like, give it back to them, which I, I don't know. I mean, I know there's people out that would maybe donate this back, but I don't know how many people out there are going to spend, you know, how much money on this just to return it. That's why I always wonder when it came, when it comes to these stories, how often do those works of arts actually get returned to their home country? Yeah, that'd be a real dilemma for me, Reggie. I mean, it, it would, but I don't think the decision would ultimately be difficult. You're talking about life-altering, life-changing money, potentially. Potentially. Now, now, if it only fetches a few thousand dollars, which you know I, I suppose is potentially the case based on what we read here, too, then maybe it's a little bit easier to turn it back over to China and say, hey, this belongs to all of humanity. We should put it on display. But if you could potentially bring in the type of cash that would change the way your life looks, I think I'd have to just auction that baby and, and, and take the funds. I know that's probably a selfish thing to say, but 
Uh, well, I feel it, like I'd have to. It could be the winner of the auction could also take care of this as well. Maybe somebody who's got lots of money and just wants to bring it in. If you're the Chinese government or one of their historical societies, uh, I, I'm not sure what type of entities exist there, but do you bid on something like this to bring it home? Maybe at least a starting bid and then hope somebody brings it back to you. Continuing with that trash or treasure theme, should we be mining our landfills? Some engineers and environmentalists think landfills are a resource that should be tapped into. According to a study in 2018, Americans tossed 292.4 million tons of trash into landfills. That equates to about five pounds of garbage per person per day. A lot of that trash stinks and can pollute the surrounding area. Now, though, it is being proposed that we should uncap a landfill and start sifting through it and look for e-waste, heavy metals, and other materials that could be recycled into new products. According to Travis Wagner, professor of environmental science and policy at the University of Southern Maine, there are millions of tons of recoverable metals, plastics, and other materials in landfills that could be worth billions of dollars. But there are several reasons this isn't happening, mostly due to the fact that the cost to mine that solid waste landfill is more than the amount the materials would recover. Part of that being there is no way to determine what types of materials can be found in each landfill. For example, if the goal was to target ore, there isn't enough information to let you know how much ore would be found or where to look for it, which can be costly to find out. There also isn't any way of knowing how much hazardous waste is present when the mining starts which can be a problem for worker safety and environmental risk. He added that only about 5% of the waste would be useful, so they would have to temporarily move about 95% of that trash and then put it back in that landfill. That process, you can probably guess, also expensive. The overall environmental risk would be high as well. Now, in Europe, landfill mining has been happening for decades, but according to Jeff Murray, vice president and landfill practice leader at HDR, Landfills are seen in a more negative way in Europe. He added that in the U.S., the demand for steel, aluminum, and precious metals is not high enough to offset the cost of mining and cleaning. He does agree that this is an interesting proposition, but he doesn't expect it to happen uh, at least within the next 15 years, maybe even longer. All right. I've got several questions following this story, Reggie. And the first one that comes to mind, because you were just talking about it, in Europe, Apparently, landfills are viewed in a more negative way. What kind of perception do we have here in the U.S. of landfills? Is it apathy or I mean, nobody looks at a landfill and says, my God, that's a beautiful thing. I think it's that we have so much more space than Europe that, yeah, we'll just put a landfill over there. That's it's a good place to get rid of our trash versus Europe. You got smaller countries that landfills taken up you know, valuable space. And I think it's seen as what are we doing with that land? Why are we just putting trash in it? Like I said, the U.S., we got we got a lot of open space that I think a lot of people just out of sight, out of mind, you know, type thing. Yeah, that does tend to be the prevailing thought process, I suppose. But nonetheless, we could absolutely be doing the environment a, a favor if, if we were to find the technology that allowed us to do this in a not fiscally responsible, but it, it, in a way that it, it's not going to cost more to carry out the mining and investigation uh, as opposed to what we would actually retrieve in this because i have to believe there's more than just the precious metals that we talked about or that you talked about in this story present in these landfills you're going to stumble upon some real finds <laughs> I, I i would think digging through the trash that dates back decades and decades if not longer 
you know, if they start doing this, maybe they'll finally find my iPod that I accidentally threw away about 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> Did you happen to see, I don't know which one of the streaming services this documentary was on, but it was a couple of years ago. I watched the search for the missing E.T. Atari games. Yes. yes. And, they, and they they'd all been dumped in a landfill somewhere. And it sounds like I never actually played the game, but it sounds like they were all dumped for good reason. <laughs> it does sound like the game was absolute trash. So I suppose placed in the right spot. But, you know, years later, people wanted to find those and it proved to not be as easy as they thought, despite knowing which landfill a lot of these things had supposedly been deposited in. So perhaps that's a warning in and of itself that locating these metals that you talked about wouldn't be all that easy. And there is the danger of finding an E.T. video game. <laughs> the future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Well, if you're a fan of the TV show Seinfeld, you've undoubtedly seen the season three episode, The Library, in which Jerry is accused of never returning a book he checked out in 1971. The episode released in 1991, so 20 years had supposedly passed, and Jerry was facing a pretty significant fine. Well, a similar story played out in England recently, if you can believe it, as Blackpool Libraries posted on Facebook that it had recovered a book checked out in 1978, 45 years later. Apparently, an apologetic former patron returned Tolkien's World, that's the title of the book, by Randall Helms after discovering it while cleaning. She told the library she used to check out books in the 1970s while working at a nearby Woolworths store, and she thought she'd returned everything years ago. Obviously not the case. The good news is that Blackpool Libraries does not find customers for late returns, so there's no financial penalty despite closing in on being five decades overdue. I found this to be particularly comical as one commentator on Facebook joked, quote, it is Tolkien, though. It is perfectly understandable as it genuinely takes that long to read, end quote. Of course, the book was actually written by Randall Helms about Tolkien and his characters. Nonetheless, I found some humor in that. So, Reggie, it's been a long time since I've checked out a library book, and I can only assume I don't have anything outstanding at the moment. What was the latest you ever took a book back? Because you and I are both of the age to where we did experience this, where, you know, you go into a library, check out the book, they stamp it on a card in the back, you go home and it's sort of the honor system that you'll bring that baby back when it's due. You're assuming I know how to read. <laughs> 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 You're telling me you ad lib these stories on every episode? I absorb it. I place my computer under the pillow and I'd use osmosis to get all this information. No, uh, I'm actually pretty <laughs> uptight about that. I feel bad when my kids bring home a book, library book from the school, and I forgot to put it in their bag to return the next week. I'm like, oh, we got to put this one in. It's it's a week late now. I, I get pretty uptight about that. So it's usually on time. So they do still do that in elementary schools, you're telling me. They still check out books the old-fashioned way. 
Yep, they check out books, they get it for a week, and they're supposed to return it the next week and then check out a new book. Okay. All right, good. I'm glad to hear that, that kids are still doing something like that and not just relying on a Kindle for everything. You know, Marcus, I actually haven't checked out a book in a while. I like the public library. I think I have its use, but with yeah, with the, the Kindles and everything now, I actually just usually buy the book. Plus, it's easy when you're traveling. You don't have to bring a heavy book. You just have that little electrical device. Now, I actually still prefer reading out of a book, but the convenience to have an electronic book is just so nice. Yeah, I get it. You can have virtually an entire library at your fingertips with one device, electronically speaking, as opposed to having to run through the process of checking out, reading, returning, all of that. But it is still, uh, at times, nice to nice to do it the old-fashioned way with, with actual paper, not to mention the effects that it has on your eyes. Much easier on them. Taking a look at this day in history in 1582, William Shakespeare. Have you heard of him, Marcus? I have, good old Bill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, at, at the age of 18, he married Anne Hathaway, not the actress that you're thinking of. <laughs> His Anne Hathaway. My God, she looks good. <laughs> yeah. Well, they end up having a daughter, Susanna, in 1583, and then twins, a boy and a girl in 1585 named Hamnet and Judith. The boy died at the age of 11. Well, sometime between 1585 and 1592, a few years after getting married, that's when he started his profession in London as an actor, writer, and part owner of a playing company called Lord Chamberlain's Men, which later became known as The King's Men. Most of Shakespeare's known works were created between 1589 and 1613. That's actually about when he retired. He retired around 1613 at the age of 49 and then died three years later. Shakespeare's works consist of some 39 plays, 154 sonnets, three long narrative poems, along with some other collaborations as well. So I guess you could say he stayed busy. Now, you're not one of those conspiracy theorists, are you, Reggie, that believes Shakespeare was actually a, an amalgamation of different authors that were pigeonholed into being published under this one singular name? Well, I mean, he clearly married an actress that is still around, so something's going on. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite magical, for sure. <laughs> it is. No, Marcus, I, I, I do not believe that. That'll do it for another edition of the Cool Stuff Ride Home podcast. He's Reggie Rizzo. I'm Marcus Papp. As always, we thank you for being here with us. We certainly appreciate that. Back tomorrow with another edition of the show. <laughs>